Hey, welcome, Jeff Johnston with the Living Undeterred podcast. Uh, I've seen a lot of this uh, young man uh, lately, uh, Kevin Heyer with the Higher Calling Foundation uh, out in the Philadelphia area uh, is my guest today. Like most of my guests I've met on social media, I'm excited to actually shake his hand. Uh, we are going to be stopping at uh, during the Living Undeterred U.S. Tour, US tour 2. Um, we're making a stop in Philly, and I'll have a chance to meet him. And today we want to talk about a lot of things. People know my passion. They know my why. But we're here to find out your passion, Kevin, and your why. And in the, amount of, the small amount of time I've known you, literally you know, months, you've accomplished so much in such a short amount of time. And today's a special day uh, for you. We talked about this before you jumped on. And uh, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about, about that. So welcome to the Living Undeterred podcast. I'm super excited to see what roads we go down because mental health doesn't have any boundaries or any limitations. No, it does not. So welcome. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. No, it's, it's a real privilege to be here because, you know, I haven't known you very long, but when I met you and I've just seen it every time we've communicated since, we're so aligned around the importance of breaking stigma. You know, the stress and isolation of the pandemic have made the topic of mental health never more important than it's ever been in our society. And so often within mental health is substance use. Mm -hmm. And that's my particular passion, but it's all part of the same ball of wax. And um, I am the CEO of the Higher Column Foundation. Yeah. So what's your mission statement? What's the objective of the Higher Call Calling Foundation? What the objective is, it's a big one, but we, we think boldly, we dream of a world where a prior substance use disorder is not a barrier to professional success. Mm -hmm. I'm an employment attorney and I'm also in recovery from meth addiction. Mm. Uh, we do a lot around breaking stereotypes here. Um, addiction crosses all backgrounds and there's no stereotypes and substances don't either. You know, whether you're addicted to alcohol, marijuana, methamphetamine, opiates, it's all the same heartbreak at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. My case happened to be methamphetamine. When I got into recovery, I founded the foundation to use my employment law skills and my network and my passion to give other people in recovery a second chance at a career. And it's what gets me up every day to well, do I, that. I commend you because um, you know, I've never done drugs myself. I hear meth is like the hardest one to, uh, to, to, to quit. Um, it's probably the most addictive drug. It's right up there. It's no competition, but it's certainly sure. a very addictive drug. Yeah. So how long, how long were you a meth user? Uh, around 18 months. I okay. got addicted at the age of 39. I had never used drugs. It was a momentary mistake caught up in a moment of insecurity as mm -hmm. I steered 40 in the face. Um, and I pulled the short straw. I got addicted the first time. And wow. within eight weeks of trying methamphetamine, I was shooting up in drug houses and very much out of a job in the blue chip law firm I practiced in in Philadelphia. Um, and I did lose my job over, mm -hmm. over my addiction. And I did end my career in prestige law over it. Now, I came back. You know, my law license has never got affected. You know, I now do this, but it's part of part of the consequences that come with addiction. Um, and I spiraled for almost 18 months until I overdosed on methamphetamine that had fentanyl in it. And oh, wow. I overdosed. I was on dialysis for 10 days, but I lived, obviously. And what I took from that experience was the desire to go give back. And that's why we call the foundation Higher Calling. It's a play on words of my last I name. I love it. I love higher. it. Higher. Yeah. Thank you. H-Y-E-R calling. Um, and that's what we do every day. So the last two years, our team and I, we're out there just giving folks in recovery who are serious about recovery yeah. a second chance. So today's your two-year anniversary, right? Yeah, it is. Well, happy anniversary. Thank you. Um, Thank you. 
Yeah, it's. Uh, I I get often perplexed about how I can add value to this whole uh, mental health um, train wreck that we seem to be on. You know, because initially, and your story is amazing. I mean, uh, was Narcan involved at all ever? No, it was okay. not at the time. But I was. I it was not. No, because now Narcan, I've met you know so many people that have been saved and numerous times on yeah. Narcan, and you know. Um, uh, it seems to be coming out to be a lot more acceptable as, as an option, but especially for people that have struggled a little bit with harm reduction philosophically. Um, and then they yeah. see what, what Narcan can do. Um, you know, I, again, I, I know I, it's, it's encouraging to see Narcan really becoming a lot more, even though the, the $50 now, whatever it costs to, to get it over the counter, you know, that's, that's something that we got to work on as advocates to get that price down to zero ultimately. Yeah, we do. You know, it's just funny. You mentioned that it's uh, one of our initiatives that the media first picked up on was where I, as an employment lawyer, you know, I've been in-house with a major union, the SEIU. And then I was on the other side of the management side of it with a huge corporation before I went into a firm, you know, we said to suit to employers, you know, look, it's great when you sponsor a little league team or something. Yeah. Give back to your community by educating your staff on how to use Narcan. You know, imagine if every employer in America took a half an hour or an hour on a Friday afternoon and taught their staff how to use it. And if they had the resources, gave everyone a unit of Narcan. Can you imagine the potential that could have to save lives? You may because know this. You may know this, but what percentage of people saved by Narcan are non-first responders, non-police? Isn't it like in the 80% range or something? It's That sounds right. I don't know the exact I mean, I saw something. I just that was just, that it it just validates that we need to get Narcan in the hands of people that, you know, normally wouldn't carry it, you know, because. And I know of stories. I'm thinking of one in particular outside Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where someone got trained how to use it at work. And that same day drove home. And I, I don't know every detail of it, but the bottom line was that same day they were able to use it to save a life. You know, it, it just, mm. it's just, it's ought to be like using a fire extinguisher, I think, or giving yeah. CPR. It's just something people should know how to do. So let's talk about stigma because I, I know that's a big, sure. it's a big thing for you. You know, I, when I give my talks, uh, I talk a lot about the two things that I think we can do to change the narrative. And one is, the idea of labels, like, like what we identify people as like an addict, you know, a, a user, you know, depressed. I mean, we, we just, we anoint labels on the people and, you know, quite honestly, if it wasn't for insurance, you know, probably 80% of the diagnosis we have wouldn't even be diagnosis, but insurance companies need a label on a form to put what's your problem. You can't just say, I look out the window and think about, you know, my vacation. And then that's not a, that, that's not a label, but if someone puts attention deficit disorder down, well, now I can file a claim or I, now I, now I identified what your, you know, what evil entity is attached to your back. You know, it's like, it's like an exorcism and I'm really out to try to change how we label. I just think there's too many of them. Um, we don't need more labels. We need less. And really, you know, again, take, Take like our son, Seth, who was given Adderall at, at 16 for attention deficit disorder, you know, had somebody presented it differently to him, you know, and said, hey, you know, Seth, you're you don't have first of all, you don't have a disorder because everyone has attention deficit. Every, everybody's at some point, their hands move, their legs move a little bit. Everyone's minds are always racing. I mean, how many people don't have a racing mind? It's like zero. I mean, literally every human being has a racing mind. So why do we put this label of disorder on kids? 
when in reality it's it's more likely a spectrum where Kevin you have a certain level of attention deficit I'm I'm like an eight some people are one but we still have it and I think if we presented it to kids that we all have this thing not you have it and Kevin doesn't right off the bat even if that isn't hundred percent accurate we tell kids that there's a goddamn fat guy up there in a red outfit with a beard delivering presents over Christmas, which is insane. And then we can't, we can't, we can't flip the narrative and tell people that it's not a disorder. It's just something that makes you human. So on one hand, we don't tell the truth to kids on a lot of things, but then on other things we feel like, well, we, we struggle with that. And I'm like, you know, how about this? How about you get a 13 year old that maybe in all sense of purposes medically is attention deficit. How about we just tell them that your, your inability to focus is what makes you unique. It's your special thing. It's like Superman, Batman, they all have special powers. We don't fricking do that, Kevin. And I will go to my grave trying to change how we do this. Now you and I, the the dads and the, the neighbors and the doctors and the experts, we can throw around these terms all we want, but why the hell does a kid have to know it's a disorder that that's, where I draw the line. I'm not going to argue with a clinician that attention deficit isn't a disorder. It's genetic, whatever. I don't care. Kids don't have to know that. Where's the benefit of telling a kid it's a disorder? I'm not sure there are benefits to zero because they're so limiting. You right. know, and they take it into adulthood. You know, and, and, and my thing is is more substance use disorder than, than mental health diagnoses. Although again, it's it's the same ball of wax. It is. What it I is. try to say is something similar to your talk about, you know, what's a superpower, you know, all these things can be used to strengthen us. Yeah. You know, and I for me in recovery, I try to say, and I say to the organizations we educate on this, you know, the recovery experience is actually a superpower. Yeah, I, know, love I love it. I love it. Qualities you yeah. develop. Oh, it's true. It really is true. The yeah. qualities you develop in recovery are what you want in a leader. Humility, right. perseverance, right. patience, the ability to look in the mirror. That's one of the Living undeterred, right? <laughs> yeah. Accountability, yeah. Um, gratitude. I mean, it's and even if you're not going to be a leader in the organization, not everyone can be. We always need to have our, our foot soldiers. Recovery makes you hard work, working, excuse me, a hard worker, deeply grateful, appreciative, humility. I mean, there's so many things I could get into about what it does to help an organization. So we frame this as DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and think yeah. it actually strengthens an organization. So, you know, I say to employers, you know, you ought to hire people in recovery. You know, what if, what if, just think about when you were trying to fill positions, you said, you know, we're looking to hire women, people of color, LGBT individuals, and people in recovery. You know, what if you were to take job postings and share them with the alumni networks of rehabs? You know, there's an amazing talent pool out there that's underutilized right now. And it's those of us in recovery who want a second chance and deserve a second chance. Well, one way to validate how um, experience and like being have a lived experience can be a good thing, like you just said, is that most of the best advocates I know, their resume is full of recovery stories. <laughs> you know, they, they have like, you know, they may not have a Harvard degree and all the other stuff, but if you tell them all the times that they've passed out or they've drove drunk or they've said something stupid to somebody, heck, heck they got a great resume um, that they could use to, that we could lean into them. But the best advocates I know come from places of absolute chaos and misery and horrific events. Um, you know, and you're no different. I'm no different. Uh, most of the people we talk to every day. So I think, you know, I came into this probably not a harm reductionist. 
Um, and I kind of really came into it thinking it kind of was a moral failing that, you know, but then as I, as I mature in this industry, I can see that it's a combination of many things. It's not one thing. It's like, but I think, I think the moral failing stigma that society puts on addicts and so forth is frustrating. And a good example I can tell you is if, and again, I'm going to say this and it's my show. I guess I can say what I want, right, Kevin? Um, I don't want to really offend anybody, but I want to, I want to just make a point here, but let's say you have a child 23 years old and that individual were to die of something that wasn't IE their fault. So it could be cancer, car accident, you know, murder, drowning, things that really are tragic, you know? Okay. And then you have a 23 year old that, you know, makes a decision to buy heroin. Maybe they're struggling with certain things and then they, put it in their arm consciously and has fentanyl and they die. The two 23 year old people that die, society looks at those deaths so differently. If I run a GoFundMe for the child, for the 23 year old that drowned or the 23 year old that died by cancer or whatever, money will come plowing in because there's a lot of empathy and compassion. It's like, Oh, that's too bad. That happened. But if I try to run a GoFundMe because you know, my son died of heroin or somebody else died of, you know, even suicide. It's like, I don't think society looks at that death equally like, well, Seth actually kind of brought it upon himself. I mean, I know no one ever told me this to my face, but I could see it in people's eyes that early yeah. when Seth died is like, well, you know, Jeff, I kind of can't be surprised this was going to happen. That was the road he was on when he was putting needles in his arms. And I'm like, that doesn't mean it's any he's any less human. It doesn't mean anything to me if he would have died by a car accident or suicide or overdose. It's fucking death and he's not here and that's that is all that's important to anybody that's that's a, a true advocate how they die the only thing i can tell you is that the deaths of despair suicide alcohol and overdose which is 825 americans every freaking day kevin the only thing i can say about the common thing is the common theme is is that most of those deaths were preventable and most were predictable Yes. And that's what doesn't make it tragic to me. It makes it unfortunate and unnecessary. But and tragic is that child that drowns in a pool. Tragic is that car accident. That that's truly tragic. That's that that my heart goes out for that. And and for the parents that have lost kids and stuff uh through overdose, suicide, and alcohol, my heart goes out as well. But what frustrates me is those eight hundred and twenty five deaths every day, those don't have to happen. They don't. I think we well, can prevent a number of them. Here's a perspective as someone who used to put a needle in my arm. All right. That comes from pain. Now, I was shooting up crystal meth, not heroin, but it's all the same heartbreak. Okay. You're not thriving at life when you're doing that. Right. That's pain that you are trying to compensate for. And everyone's pain is different. You're self-medicating at that point, right? Exactly. Yeah. We need to, in my opinion, offer people a real second chance. Hold them accountable when they do commit crimes because I do believe in that. You know, if you're out selling drugs, the law has to have place some limitations on that behavior. But yeah. you can incarcerate someone appropriately. You can put someone on probation and then give them a real second chance. Right. You know, recognize the strengths they bring to the table. You know, people who've been to prison, quite frankly, many of them are very strong people. Mm -hmm. That's a, one hell of an experience. And it's one, fortunately, I've not had. But I know people who've had it. And they are good people. Good people make mistakes. Good people can have an addiction. And it's not a moral failing. Mm -hmm. It may start out, in my opinion, as having fun. 
but eventually it's self-medicating pain. That's what the disease of addiction is. It's ineffectively managed pain that often becomes a generational cycle because the children who have pain and trauma self-medicated as adults. And some of the pain that they're then medicating was trauma from the chaos of the adult's addictions. Like if your parents go to prison when you're 10 years old, that's pretty traumatizing. Mm -hmm. That's going to set you on a different life course than someone maybe whose parents didn't have those addiction issues. Right. Or if they did, they were in recovery and could offer their children stability. That yeah. makes sense? It does make sense. You know, and yeah. um, Dr. Gabor Mate claims, and he his position is pretty clear that all addiction stems from childhood trauma. Um, yeah. I, I, well. I love Gabor Mate. I do too, but. In, in my case, ghosts, in my case, I didn't. Have, I never had childhood trauma, so and maybe I did. I just don't remember. I, I, I don't know. Um, and uh, but I was addicted to alcohol for thirty-two years, and I was a compulsive gambler for almost twenty. So I have the addiction, you know, gene if there is one. And I think, how about this? I would say I have the competitive gene. I don't know if I'm going to label it addiction. I'm a competitor, and so are you. I'm an ex-athlete. It's like, you know, um. To me, my alcohol usage wasn't escaping some horrific event, even my gambling. To me, I was bored. I was small town Iowa. I was an athlete, good, pretty decent student, pretty popular, but we were small. I was bored. It's like we got beer. We drove around the back woods. We drove around the gravel road. We talked about relationships and sports and college, and we drank, and that was it. You know, we, we didn't get in bar fights. We didn't, you know, obviously we drove drunk a lot, which I, I, I got very fortunate and lucky. Um, I had a number of accidents, but they, I never got, I got one arrested for drunk driving like in 99, but other than that, I kind of was pretty fortunate with all the stupid things. And I'm sure you did a lot of really dumb things that we could both be sitting in prison right now. Um, but you know, I guess, okay. So let me ask you this question. Why do some people have the ability to just quit cold Turkey? Like, like say I did. And then others just, it's a continuous battle. I mean, is that something that you think is in that person's DNA or do you think somebody just reached rock bottom so bad that they finally realize that the only thing next is death? Uh, the grand questions of life, you know, uh, Jeffrey. Um, <laughs> well, I'm curious what your answer, thoughts are on that. Yeah, yeah. I think if we could answer that, each of us could be cruising the world on a yacht right now um, and write a book on it. You know, I don't know that I have the answer. I have some thoughts. I do think there's the science shows that, that substance use disorder, disease of addiction, whatever you want to call it, is genetically predisposed. Some people do have, I think, an easier time stopping than others. Some people also have more resources than others. You know, I mean, one thing I saw in, in my walk, you know, frankly, I, you know, I was an upper middle class attorney. I had, and I'm obviously Caucasian, I had certain privileges unearned that yeah. other people didn't. And right. I speak a lot in my writing on how race and class affects. I did too. Yeah. Yeah. Not everyone is, is comes to the table with the same playing field. Yeah. However, everyone has the chance to recover. And that's the hope we offer through the higher calling foundation. You know, if you work the 12 steps, if you believe in that, but if the 12 step model of recovery does not speak to you, there are other forms of it. Smart recovery, celebrate recovery. Mm -hmm. um, and I often say, and I'll say now, we're not the only game in town. I believe in the 12-step model. I mean, I named Higher Calling Foundation after Higher Power. Um, my last name played into it, but that's really not what it was about. I'd have called it the Higher Calling Foundation regardless. Um, some of us are just able, I guess, to find that, that, that inner fight, but I wouldn't castigate and judge those who struggle with it. It takes a couple times, and you have to give people something to live for. 
we say at our foundation, when I, when I do a lot of speaking on, on a national level, what we offer through a career is the meaning and the purpose and gratitude that work gives you. The purpose, in my case, you know, I'm building a foundation to help others, the meaning from it. Right. You know, I'm helping end the heartbreak of addiction, a disease my family knows very, very, very well. Right. You know, I share sometimes, you know, my mom lost her brother to suicide from untreated addiction. Oh, wow. I still have a family member who's in active addiction. I haven't even seen in 12 years yeah. because of him spiraling out in the wind. Right. So I've seen the pain of this. So the purpose to build this foundation, the meaning that I'm helping other families and the gratitude that I got a second chance. And I never thought I'd have a shot at professional redemption. Yeah. A lawyer developing a meth addiction isn't something people forget. You know, it's not like saying what you had for lunch the other do you day. Know, uh, do you know Brian Cuban? I do. Yeah. Uh, I've read his book, uh, The Ambulance Chaser. Um, he actually donated some money at one point off Twitter into my nonprofit because he was compelled to. I shared my story with him. But, you know, he's, he's a lawyer that talks in the depths of his practicing and uh you know he he was a pretty bad place and he shares it and uh he's become a uh, is full of addiction i was thinking of him when you were talking about your legal background and stuff well and like you were both high achievers i know your background was in wealth management you know i think sometimes those of us who have such expectations on ourselves and the pressures you know of your case just as much as mine managing your clients money buying my clients you know it's high achievers of whatever kind put stresses upon themselves, you know, yeah. and with those come rewards, obviously, but you know, they're, they're demands. And one thing I love about recovery is it's helped me appreciate what matters in life. Like I've written on LinkedIn, which is, I love how I met you and I met some other yeah. amazing people, you know, I've learned to appreciate something. And I mean this sincerely, this, this isn't any kind of spin, the simplicity of nature, a beautiful sunset the marveling yeah. at the mystery of the world. Yeah. You know, the other night I was reading about Mars, okay, utterly random, but the fact that like, there's something greater out there than us. When I was before my, before I came into recovery, I was, I was obsessed frankly with money, status, prestige. And then as I got yeah. addicted, um, yeah. you know, I just spiraled, you know, I, I was yeah. not the best version of myself. So what's, if there's any silver lining to addiction, it's that as heartbreaking as it is, and as much as it takes you to health and back, you can come out of it better off than you were before. And it clarifies, it, it should, it should cut through and clarify what's important to you in your life. But I want to go back on something you said, because sure. in my book, I present this kind of an argument uh, or a, I submit this as an opportunity where people have used and used the word pre predetermined. And it kind of caught my attention because I, I, again, I talk about the difference and I want to ask you a question on this. Is there a difference between predetermined and predisposed? <clears throat> because in, in my philosophically for me, you could have the DNA gene. You could have you could be predetermined through birth because of your alcoholism and your parents and your grandparents and it goes on and on and on. But predisposed doesn't mean you're predetermined. It doesn't mean that you have to drink alcohol. So I think I think the fact we're pre predisposed you have a predisposition. I think that's that's an interesting nugget of knowledge that could maybe understand or explain to you why you feel the way you do. But it certainly isn't going to make you pick up alcohol and drink it. You know, what's also fascinating is in, in my family, you know, I have a sibling who has who struggles with alcohol. Mm -hmm. Alcohol didn't flip that switch in my brain. I was able to drink in my college fraternity days and I matured out of it in law school. Right. Like I was a social drinker. But when I tried cocaine and methamphetamine, I, I never did that. Yep. Dude, yeah. if I'd done it, I'd been Len Bias. I'd been dead. I, I mean, I know for a fact right now, if there was a, a couple lines of Coke and I would have been 20, I would have done them all. 
yeah, cocaine and stimulants are, are, are a bear because nothing releases more in terms of the science, dopamine, this, nothing yeah. releases more dopamine than methamphetamine yeah. and cocaine's right up there. Yeah. So you get this blast of, of euphoria, yeah. you know, and, and, but then you get the crushing depression. Oh, and the, but with the evil of addiction is once you have that feeling, you can't unremember it. And so the swings it just keep, back. the swings get wider and wider, right? The hires get higher, and that's why you're chasing that higher fentanyl or whatever you want to put in your chasing the drug. And then the yeah, downs, really are, the downs are worse and but... worse until you either you know decide that that's your rock bottom or you die. Or you, or frankly, you know, we're talking honestly here. A lot of people don't realize one of the biggest risk factors for suicide is untreated addiction. Many people who have addiction issues die by suicide yeah. because of the wreckage it leaves in its past, the ups and downs. And they're I so believe- co-occurring, right? I mean, uh, all these things are interrelated. So, you know, depression, anxiety, sleep disorder, suicidal ideation, um, uh, you know, um, alcoholism, drug addiction. I mean, they're, they're, this is the problem that I have initially, Kevin, with the industry when I came into it is this idea of um, mental health whack-a-mole or, or it's like, you know, we would yeah. take one problem. Oh, you're an alcoholic. And we would just spend everything on trying to get that person to quit drinking. And the reality is maybe there's four or five other things that are equally as bad that they're doing or two, but we tend to like go after one part of the forest fire aggressively coming in, dumping everything on it. And then the other stuff flames up and start, and then we go run over there. And I think that's an opportunity that we, kind of miss in this industry that um, too many of us are, are really focused on one thing. Um, and let me ask you a question. Is, is abstinence the only way? I mean, I want abstinence, but I know, I know in my heart that even as an alcoholic and all that, that um, I could have a glass of wine very easily. And I, I say that because I do order wine when I'm out for dinner sometimes by myself, just to, just to jokingly, I don't drink it. But I order it and because I'm widowed, so I go on dates by myself a lot. But I'll order a nice glass of Cabernet and the waiter will come up, wait on me, and then I won't drink it on purpose. I make sure it's an expensive one. And then he always comes back and I'll pay the bill. And then he or she or say, um, I have to ask you, Mr. Johnston, you know, obviously you liked your meal, but, you know, did you not like the wine? And I always look up and I say the same thing every time and I absolutely love it. I just say, I don't drink. That's it. And then they always look at me like, huh? I, yeah, I just, I don't drink. And I don't go into detail. And I see them going back to their manager going, just met this weird guy. And the reason why I do it that way, I don't tell them why I don't drink, is I want them to think that this guy is so fucking anti-alcohol that he could, and he's so in control of his life, he could order a glass of wine and look at it and smell it yeah. and not drink it. Now, AA wouldn't recommend that, Kevin. <laughs> I don't no, think in the not. big book they recommend going out and. But you know, for me, well, again, I'm highly competitive. Alcohol isn't yeah. going to beat me. Okay, no. alcohol is not going to be the reason why I die. Could be a meteor. Could be something else. I, I it could be shark eats me when I'm scuba diving. I don't. I don't know. But I know what it's not going to be. It ain't going to be drugs. And it's not going to be alcohol. That 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 I know. And if it is drugs, then someone poisoned me. But other than that. Um, <laughs> I have no desire to, to ever do that stuff. So let me ask you a question again about abstinence. I mean, can people that have addiction problems have a glass of wine on a Saturday night? Or is that something that's not possible? 
Oh, <laughs> I'm asking you easy questions. You know what it's like today. saying? No, I know. This is a great dialogue we're having. I'm enjoying this. Um, can you run a stop sign at 100 miles an hour and not kill yourself or anyone else? Sure, you can. Yep. But you're yep. also playing with fire when you do it. Right. You know, are there people that could probably go drink on a Saturday night and get out of it unscathed? Yeah, I'm sure it happens. I know it does. I mean, relapses happen. You know, for me personally, I'm 100% sober. Now, does alcohol tempt me? It really doesn't. You know, the devil on my shoulder comes in the form of stimulants. I loved yeah. cocaine and methamphetamine. I love the, the, the there, there, there's a, and anyone listening to this who's been addicted to stimulants knows what it is. Stimulants are infamous for their legendary high. Yeah. But then they have the crippling depression and they're very addictive. And that's the one medic substance that has really no MAT, medicated assisted uh, treatment for it. Yep. If you're addicted to coke or meth, ultimately it's, it's, it's the 12 step model counseling um, behavioral therapy. Right. Now that doesn't make it any less real, right. but you don't have things like naloxone for that or right. um, methadone, right. okay? uh, suboxone. So, you know, to answer your question, I personally would not want to try to use any mind altering substances. I guess I'm kind of pretty progressive when it comes to, to harm reduction, although like you, I wasn't always. I am for myself pretty conservative. You know, I come from the model that AA and NA says that this is um, an incurable, progressive and fatal disease. You know, where men and women who suffer from the disease of addiction for which there is no known cure, but it can be arrested. I'm quoting some of their literature with that. Um, I love it. Because the problem is there are, are drug addicts. I, no problem calling myself. That's what I am, recovering one. And labels, when we own labels, are not so scary. Okay. Have become alcoholics, even though that wasn't their first drug of choice. Hmm. You know? Um, so to answer your question, sure. I bet there are people. But there are also people that end up getting seriously addicted and dying. And that's what's so scary about this disease. It's progressive. It gets worse and worse and worse. And then you die from it. Or if you don't die, sometimes it's a different it's even worse. You know, there's the chaos in your life, you know, that your family sees how painful it is watching someone spiraling. Oh, and often the, worst, the children, the worst or, ever, whether it's your children or nieces and nephews, whatever minors are in your life that are dependent on you getting hurt by the mm -hmm. chaos in your life. They often go up to trauma, get, go up, grow up, excuse me, to self-medicated, you know, parents and children, parents incarcerated does so much harm on children. You know, and the parents guilt, you know, there's just such heartbreak around this. So yeah, my the collateral, passion, collateral damage is, is, uh, yeah, is horrific, you. but you know, I, I got is to go ahead. Sorry. No, it's just our big passion is to give people as much of a second chance as possible. We call it hitting reset. Yeah. And that in doing that, we save their lives. We give them a more peaceful life and we start to cut off the cycle of addiction. Yeah. Um, I had someone ask me the other day, it's like, you know, I, you know, they were struggling with their drinking and all that. And, um, they asked me how I, how I did it. You know, like I had some secret sauce to give them that they could quit drinking. And I said that I had such an intense desire to quit because a Seth died and then watching my wife pretty much, you know, I guess suicide by alcohol, I would say, you know, watching her literally drink herself to death is when I quit and I stopped drinking, I guess, um, I realized after a period of time, Kevin, that it was easier for me not to drink than to drink, that the not drinking became easier. And that was my road of least resistance. The road of least resistance wasn't to go get drunk to hide from pain and all that. That was actually the road of more resistance. The road of least resistance where I end, ended up on is a road now where, you know, fairly pragmatic person. Um, it's just easier for me not to drink. It's just that, that, that's, that's that conscious decision I made that's probably built from a 
subconscious or an unconscious um, uh, desire that I want to honor Seth and Prudence the best that I can. And I can't do that. And my granddaughter, too. You know, when Seth died, his daughter was born three weeks later, which is the name of our, our, um, our app, Brighton, is thinking in the back of my head, um, boy, it's so much easier not to drink. It's just, it's just easier not to have that, that sip. Because, you know, I say I could have one glass, but I know what one glass would turn into. I like it too much. I would have a whole bottle. And then I would be back to maybe two nights later, have another glass. And I, I just, I know me too well that I think I'd slowly kind of get back. I don't think I'd be back to seven day a week alcoholic I was, but I'm pretty certain that I would be overconfident that I've got this thing whipped, you know? And I, I don't think that's, I think that's one thing about in recovery that I like is that you're acknowledging that this is a lifetime, you know, you're, you're never out of recovery. No. Um, and, and, uh, you either, it's you, a lifetime illness. Yeah, once you're in it, you're, you're in it forever. But I will tell you this in my book, I talked about this is, you know, I know when you sit down in a meeting, you say, hey, I'm Jeff, I'm an alcoholic. Um, I started thinking to myself, well, if, if, if alcohol is a disease, and let's take something like eating, an eating disorder, let's say that's a disease too. Well, if I'm really overweight, and I go to Overweight Eaters Anonymous, and I'm sitting around a table of a bunch of people that are overweight, and I say, hi, I'm Jeff, I'm fat. Um, you know, and then everyone says, Hey Jeff, you know, thanks for acknowledging your fat. You know, we all talk about our, our problems. And then two, two months later I lose weight. I don't, I'm not overweight or anything. I've lost 30 or 40 pounds. And I come into the meeting. I'm not going to say, Hey, I'm Jeff, I'm fat. I'm not going to say that because I'm not fat anymore. So I'm like, okay, so I don't tell people, Hey, I'm Jeff, I'm an alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic anymore. So for me, I don't, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not an alcoholic. Um, I just don't drink. And so I've, I've used this stoicism reframing talent of mine to kind of look at it as if I was overweight and I went to Overeaters Anonymous and I said, hey, I'm Jeff, I'm fat. If I came back later and lost all that weight, I wouldn't say, hey, I'm, I'm fat. I, I would say, hey, I'm Jeff and I'm back. I feel better. I feel great. So I, I just I've always been perplexed on why people have to acknowledge in front of other people that they're still an alcoholic when they don't drink. I just I want to tap your brain on that. What's I know there's a utility in the community giving you yeah. lots of love. I get that, but I think you just hit it. Is that the only reason you think why it. people acknowledge? Cause I, I, I'm trying to get people to say, Hey, if you don't drink anymore, you're not an alcoholic. And, uh, I, I don't have any medical background, but that's trying, trying to get people to quit telling them themselves that they're an alcohol. They just choose. They just don't drink alcohol. The, I mean, it's very sincerely, the longer that maybe I'm, I'm naive. I only speak from my walk. The more I pe meet people in recovery professionally as well as personally, this is so dependent sometimes on individual circumstances yeah. and what addiction very much is. Yeah. Okay. What's the backstory, whatever it takes to keep you from harming yourself and the loved ones you have is probably what works. So, so is that the pathway? Yourself, is that the pathway, Kevin, that people talk about everyone's recovery pathway is different? I, yes. And it's not just a cliche or something right. nice to say. I think it's true. Yeah. If for you, you want to say I'm an ex-alcoholic, it doesn't really matter what you call yourself. You can call yourself whatever you want. Right. Are you staying sober? Correct. Or if you are using, is it generating problems? Right. You know, I know people that would say they're an ex-addict. I know some people that would say they're a recovering addict. Yeah. And there's some people who still say they're addicts. You well, know, now, now, now they the just day, say I'm in recovery. That, that basically covers everything. Yeah. Yep. Does. 
I think the words and the semantics are really less important because ultimately this is all self-reported. You know, that's why when people talk about how long they've been sober, it's a wonderful metric, but it's what they're sharing with you. No one knows at 2 a.m. what you're doing on a Saturday night. But do you all think right? there's a do you think there's a mindset difference if, if you and I are talking and I say, hey, Kevin, I'm an alcoholic or hey, Kevin, I, I'm in recovery or hey, Kevin, I don't drink. I think I think I think there is how you how you present that from your mouth. I think I think psychologically could be different how you say that. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm acknowledging the fact that I have a drinking issue, but the way I'm presenting it, it just seems, Hey, I'm an alcoholic is so self-defeating. It's so like whipping well, yourself. Words matter. Yeah. Recovery dialects, what they call it. You know, the words we use do matter. Yeah. You know, it, 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 I, I, you referenced the utility yeah. of speaking in front of others and having a sense of community. Yeah. I think a sense of community does go a very long I way. I do too. Um, for me, in, in my personal recovery, you know, in the 12-step community here in Philadelphia and, and to a lesser degree down in Richmond, Virginia, where I spend a little bit of time, you know, it does help to have people you can talk to. It helps right. to know that these people, you know, just want to see you recover. Yeah. They have no other agenda. They're not trying to sell you something. They, they're not trying to, to date you. They're not, they're not trying to do anything other than support you as a brother and sister in recovery. All right. So I have, I have a goal. I have something for you I want you to do. Okay. I am anti-harm reduction. I'm not. I'm just role-playing with you. Okay. Convince me why harm reduction is needed. Absolutely. It saves lives. you got to meet people where they're at at first. All right. If somebody still needs to use drugs, should they? No. Is it deadly? Yes. Is right. it dangerous? Absolutely. Yeah. But you have to start somewhere to get someone to move where you want them to go. So right. if somebody came to me and said, I used to do meth, but now I'm doing coke. Because if you put a gun to my head, cocaine is less dangerous than methamphetamine. Mm -hmm. It can still wreck your life. Mm -hmm. I'd say, great, we're making progress. Your use of cocaine is going to kill you if you don't stop. Mm. Okay, it will. However, it may not happen tomorrow. It may not happen next week. It may not happen next year. It could happen tomorrow. Right. What you're doing is dangerous. But it's not, here's the rub. It's not a character issue. Your use of drugs or alcohol in and of itself is not a morality issue. Mm. But it's dangerous. It yeah. could kill you. And it could hurt the other people in your life. I like so that. think to yourself, when you do this, you know, my mother said, I'm very real. Picture me laid out in the casket because I'm going to die of a stroke potentially if you overdosed me. Wow. Now, I'm not blaming her. I think what she said is true. If I overdosed on drugs, that could do a lot of harm to my family. So is what I'm doing in and of itself necessarily wrong? I don't think it is. Right. But you need to reduce the harm. So however you do it, so say, picture how it affects the people in your life. But once you get them to a point where they're ready to get away from substances. It takes some time. Like think of any other change in your life. Yeah. It doesn't happen overnight. Right. You know, right. you open your minds, you know, look at even social progress around race, LGBT rights, you know, lots of things people evolve on. Yeah. I, I think it's the recovery space to me is so interesting and fascinating because there's so many right ways to do it. Um, it seems like there's more right ways than there are wrong ways. There's only, a handful of wrong ways, just, you know, go back to using, but how many ways you can, you know, whether it's, you know, your God is something that drives your faith and not wanting to use, or it's your children. In my case, my two remaining boys. Um, is it my dad who's 90 that I'm so fortunate he didn't die last summer when we were on tour, he had a stomach aneurysm and he shouldn't be here. I mean, he was, he was dead. We were, we were 12 hours from pulling the plug. My three brothers and I met, I was for pulling the plug. My other brother was, we had one brother that was against it. But based on all the data we had at my dad's age, it was like a 5% survival rate. And if he did survive, he was going to be in a, you know, in a really bad position in a hospital. And my dad is an outdoorsman. But the reality was 
my dad lived. He's home now. I go over and watch. I watch the Super Bowl at his place. I watch the Hawks. And I pinch myself how lucky I am to have yeah, have this opportunity. So there are really good reasons to live. And this hopelessness and this, um, you know, lack of purpose and meaning that people that are in the dip, the depths of uh, addiction have um, clouds their judgment in a way to look at how really great things they do have in their life that they don't realize that they just they don't. They're so wrapped up in themselves that they lose focus of how many people really care about them. And think of the 800, 825 people a day die. OK. And I say this when I talk is like, OK, that that's a death statistic, right? Think of the 825 Americans that die of the deaths of despair. How many individuals are impacted by those 825 that die? I mean, it's in it's in the millions, probably. We take cousins and nieces and nephews and coworkers, and it's. It, I mean, it's it's the collateral damage, the ripple effect through the universe is just um, horrific. And then you go further. Think of the families that haven't had death yet. And you don't think there's destruction and decimation and, and uh, devastation in those families? Of course, there. you don't have to have death to destroy oh, a family. Well, that's why I said sometimes death death is actually, I, I never want to say it's preferable. I, I know what you're saying. getting arrested. Yeah. Yeah. The domestic violence, sometimes sexual assault. I mean, this disease is heartbreaking. And you know, and you know the people that come out of Narcan saying, why'd you save me? You've heard that. Yeah. I haven't actually, but I can. No, but you haven't heard it personally, but I've heard the stories where first responders can say we saved somebody that's his fifth overdose and, you know, and uh, they'll come out and they, they really, you know, it's like suicide by cop. It's like they, they wanted to, they wanted to die. And, and so they kind of were thinking that why, why did I get saved? But, you know, so you've, you've convinced me, I, I, I think harm reduction is something that I go back and look at our situation. It's like Seth died in a hotel room with the doors locked by himself. So Narcan wouldn't have done any good, Kevin. Unless somebody was there, you can't Narcan yourself. Um, so, but imagine if Seth was in a situation where there would have been four or five people and somebody had Narcan, maybe that moment that he came out of that Narcan, maybe that was his epiphany moment. Like I had on December 24th, 17, when I quit drinking and maybe he'd still be here. So I'm all for anything saving lives. I don't care. Well, it's not mutually exclusive. Like we right. can help people reduce harm while also saying this is an incurable, progressive, and fatal illness. Good point. Right. You know, it's not one or the other. What I'd also add something, you know, you referenced um, small town Iowa. You know, what I find interesting about this disease is whether you are in New York City, LA, or if you call a town in the heartland, this disease has the same heartbreak. Rich, poor, black or white, whatever your faith tradition. Right. You know, some people have more resources to get out of it. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the heartbreak it has on families is the same. Well, I you had know? someone tell me too, Kevin, it's like, you know, there's such this big emphasis on, um, on, on fentanyl. I mean, fentanyl is like the top of every conversation. It's like weapon of mass destruction. You know, you hear Biden in his speech says the word fentanyl. I mean, how often did we ever hear, you know, presidents actually name these, these synthetic opioids by name? Normally it's addiction and substance abuse, but you know, um, you've got, you've got fentanyl, such a focus that, man, it's almost distracting us from, you know, from the other issues that aren't fentanyl related. And I can oh, see, yeah, I can yeah. see us just as humans, just chasing fentanyl. Like, Hey, if we can get fentanyl off the planet, more people are going to live And the reality. Oh, is, there's no evidence. Pain. There's no evidence that 
if we took all the fentanyl off the planet, that people would stop dying. The reality is most people that have issues are going to find something else. And the drug dealers already know that. Yeah, xylazine. Yep. It was a trank or something. Yeah, trank, exactly. Um, You know, stimulants do plenty of damage. And and classic, plain old-fashioned alcohol. Yeah. The one criticism I sometimes hear is that in such an awareness about the opioid overdose epidemic, we're not seeing the damage that meth, you know, which is what I was addicted to. Meth doesn't kill you overnight. 100%, man. Iowa has a huge meth problem. I mean, substantially more. Um, I know an organization. You're out west and east. I know an organization. Well, we have andro and farmers have the anhydrous ammonia. We have all the, we have all the chemicals to make uh, meth here in the Midwest because of all the the emphasis on farming. Because there's a lot of chemicals that was used um, in farming, especially the uh, ammonia. Yeah. Um, but, you know, yeah, so it's like, you know, I guess my my goal as an advocate is to create the awareness, um, present the, the the issue to the public and then have these dialogues where we can start getting people moved in the right direction. Um, we're coming up on uh, on me having to cut this off um, a little bit about the higher calling. What do you do each day? What's your overall objective? How do people reach you? Um, you people are going to know more about you through living undeterred because we're going to make some announcements on our tour stop in Philly. And I'm really excited to partner with you guys and, um, Likewise. you know, punch this thing right in the face, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Our website is higher but it's spelled H Y E R calling.org, which is my last name. We're a 501 C three. We charge nothing to individuals. Um, if you are in recovery, we will not turn you away for a general consult. That, that's our, our gift to the recovery community. We turn no one away for a basic consultation. Now, there are eligibility requirements for certain services. Right. If you are in, requ- in recovery and you come to us, we will help you figure out what it might look like to get a second chance at a career. And we have a host of different services from helping people expunge criminal convictions hmm. to job placement assistance, reference advocacy. I really enjoy. That's going back to a former employer and saying, look, I get you can't take them back. But is there a way we can get an endorsement on something they did well to help them move on with their life? We'll help you get interview attire. We'll help you get to interviews. We'll even pay for your transportation costs till you get your first paycheck. Yeah, Um, that's great. Mentoring programs, internships and externships, obviously interview preparation, resume review. Um, it kind of could go even beyond that. We do a ton of different things. It's like a bridge. It's like a bridge, right? It's like, a, it's like a bridge metaphorically. Yeah. Helping people. It, we, what we do is it's a, we're narrow. It's, it's a niche of, of more depth rather than breadth, but it's how to get someone back into the workplace so that they can secure it and then maintain it. Hmm. You know, during your first year of employment, we'll walk with you along, you know, and there's, again, there's limitations on some of this, but we will help you stabilize that first year. We offer coaching through the International Coach Federation. That's something businesses spend thousands on for their executive team, and we can offer for free. Hmm. Um, and if you go to our website, you can look into how you could get it. And again, we never, ever charge an individual for it. Hmm. Our revenue comes from donations and selling uh, management training and corporate sponsorship. Well, listen, man, I love you like a brother. Um, really appreciate your intentions and, and what you're trying to do and, and to save lives. I mean, that's, that's at the, at the end of the day, that's, that's really what we're all trying to do. Um, and we need to, because this ship that we're on is, is wiltering to the, it's, it's, it's slowly sinking. And, um, it's all hands on deck. That you know, I love that. It's a phrase I use frequently. I love it. And it's all angles. It's all, we need the alcohol experts. We need the drug experts. We need the, you know, people have dealt with suicide. We need, um, yeah. you know, 
all together. So, hey, listen, uh, really enjoyed your appearance, and um, you and I aren't going anywhere apart. So um, I'm looking forward to coming to Philly and um, promoting the heck out of uh, that stop. So thanks a lot again. Um, I look forward to touching base with you. Okay, Kevin? Sounds good. All right, man. Thanks.